If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. Friday, June 3rd, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I've been thinking about the effects of the Depp Heard trial in which Johnny Depp netted over $10 million based on the jury agreeing with all of his defamation claims and awarding punitive damages. Amber Heard, one-on-one single defamation claim, no punitive damages. The predictions about the effects going forward center on one word. Jody Cantor of the New York Times won a Pulitzer for her Me Too coverage. She raised the prospect on CBS. There could be a chilling effect. More than a worry of certainty, says NBC legal analyst Carolyn Polisi. Without a doubt, this will have a massive chilling effect. And Kaylin Rosenblatt, a reporter for MSNBC, had this to add. Other abuse survivors who are seeing this are going to fear that when they present their story, that they will have jokes made out of them or memes made out of them or that people will uh, use fallacies such as, well, why didn't you report sooner? Or, um, you know, why didn't you tell anyone about this? Title of the online piece Rosenblatt co-authored was Amber Heard verdict blasted as setback for women and domestic violence survivors. The piece did not say, I think it legally couldn't say, that the jury got it wrong. But the judgments of chill and setback do presume, or at least don't make much sense, if it is the fact that the jury's decision was a just one. I understand why a chilling effect would be predicted. Perhaps legitimate survivors of abuse will conclude they didn't believe the very believable Amber Heard. Why would they believe me? But isn't it more likely that women who are being abused or will experience abuse, they are drawn from America as a whole, which surveys indicate Americans doubt Amber Heard's authenticity in this matter. So that means that I think plenty of current or future victims will conclude something like, well, since I really did suffer abuse, I'm more likely to be believed. And why wouldn't abuse survivors have been chilled by Tara Reid, who accused Joe Biden of rape and is now widely, I'd say nearly universally regarded as discredited? Why would a non-celebrity fear memes? Why would they fear now this specific question of why didn't you tell anyone about this, which, by the way, isn't a fallacy. It is a question that often has a reasonable answer involving fear of coming forward that our society and plenty of juries seem to have understood four days ago, but somehow they don't now, all because one specific person lost her court case. The chill very well can happen. I can't really tell you which particular misperception might take hold. But if the idea is actual bona fide abuse survivors will be disbelieved because Amber Heard was disbelieved, there are many complications on the way to that supposition, that assertion. There were many reasons why Amber Heard was disbelieved that don't have to do with the general disbelief in women. Amber Heard, a specific woman, really was caught being disingenuous or untruthful on the stand and in the trial, leaking photos to TMZ, then denying it under oath, asserting incorrectly that she actually donated millions to charity, her claims of damage to physical property, including wine stains and a trash trailer, a broken phone. None of those things matched up to the observations of unbiased third parties who arrived on the scene soon after they were said to have occurred. It is possible that Amber Heard got unlucky. If just one of these third parties looked more carefully, maybe they would have seen what she said occurred. It's also possible she exaggerated some of the incidents. 
It's possible that she has borderline personality disorder that Johnny Depp's paid expert said she has, but people with borderline personality disorder can be abused too. It's possible she was convinced things happened that didn't happen, while at the same time, many of the instances of abuse actually did occur. But my issue is, how are juries to process these contradictions? Normally, a jury is told to evaluate all of the evidence, but also instructed that contradictions and lies can be fairly interpreted as damaging the credibility of a witness. The common law idea of falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus, exists to this day. Some courts reject it, others say, lie once and we really can't believe you in all the things you assert. Are the demands of understanding the issue of domestic abuse just incompatible with the idea of a jury of lay people and what they're asked to comprehend? Do they have to be specially read in? There are actually mechanisms under the law to educate juries and they work. Maybe juries go in thinking, oh, why would an abuser stay with his victim and vice versa? But then experts testify and plenty of juries, if they had the misperception before, can be instructed, oh, I see, that, that explains the supposedly inexplicable phenomenon, what the MSNBC reporter called a fallacy. This very jury was presented with such experts testifying that abused people often seem outwardly gracious to their abusers. The same debate, by the way, was had in the Harvey Weinstein case and the R. Kelly case and thousands of cases of abusers whose names we don't know. And juries in those cases got it right. They saw through the kinds of texts from abuse to abuser. And they still convicted. Juries have shown themselves very capable of understanding that an abuser can have control over a victim. The jury in this case did not. That does not indicate that no jury can do so. That does not indicate that we simply have no chance of understanding these complicated dynamics. Just the fact that this jury didn't believe after six weeks of testimony that those were the dynamics at play. Amber Heard was not the perfect victim. It's a meaningless phrase that doesn't exist. But many other victims strike many juries as actually victimized, and all those other victims are imperfect too, because that's how human beings work. Just Amber Heard, a specific person with a specific set of facts around her case, didn't convince the jury that she really was a victim. Amber Heard, maybe not in all of her accusations, was in some ways not truthful, and those two ideas very much go together. Writing in The Guardian, Moira Donegan, in a piece headlined, The Amber Heard Johnny Depp Trial Was an Orgy of Misogyny, wrote, The lawsuit is not complicated. It is abuse. Now that abuse has been sanctioned by a jury. Wow. In that framing, there is only one acceptable verdict, irrespective of the evidence, irrespective of jury instructions, irrespective of the actual testimony of all the people at the trial had to come and decide that Johnny Depp needed to lose. One woman, this is Donegan continuing, one woman has been made into a symbol of a movement that many view with fear and hatred, and she's being punished for that movement. In this way, Heard is still in an abusive relationship, but now it's not just with Depp, but with the whole country. Now I ask, who is making her into any kind of symbol? If you regret her status as the face of Me Too, don't participate in the process. Many famous men have been literally convicted of crimes or at least societally shunned, and the women who accuse them 
are often of the same status as Amber Heard, famous themselves, Annabella Sciorra, Janice Dickinson, Megyn Kelly, Gretchen Carlson, Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie. I go on and on. I'm sure all these women had their fair of trolls, but there was no widespread attempt to rise up and punish them or make them pay. Generally, again, there are horrible people out there. Generally, these women were celebrated because these women were seen as making correct and righteous accusations. The country did not engage in the abuse of these or most of the other women who made accusations that turned out to have been true. And all of those women were imperfect because every human is. Amber Heard lost a civil case because of, well, maybe society, maybe asymmetrical lawyering, maybe because she fell into the universal category of the imperfect. It's also possible she was at least partially dishonest, deceptive, and overly dramatic. There is no way to know the truth of how much of her allegations were legitimate, but she, not society, online mobs, or an abusive jury, significantly contributed to the difficulty of discerning the legitimacy thereof. On the show today, I spiel about Turkey's whole new direction. But first, he played Milton, the swing line stapler obsessive in office space, the billionaire station owner in news radio, Gaston Means in Boardwalk Empire, And now, the manipulative assassin agent in Barry, Fuchs. But you may have a Stephen Root role that means the most to you. And so we will discuss all 200... No, let me amend that. We will discuss very few of Stephen Root's over 200 roles up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. In booking this interview, I came to a realization. The actor Stephen Root might be my favorite actor ever, and I base it on this, 
when you're going down a list of people who may be in a movie or TV show and you're on the fence or I'm on the fence or possibly mildly interested, once I get to that name, Stephen Root, you know, usually third or fourth, I'm almost always say I'm in. If Stephen <laughs> Root is involved, at least that performance will be great. It was in Office Space. It was in the TV show News Radio. Just the other week, I was watching an old Seinfeld and there he was in the back of a bank giving advice. I'm like, it's Stephen Root. And he crushed the role as always. He stars as Fuchs in Barry, which is just about the funniest and most body. unexpectedly yes, funny show on TV. It's body, yes. <laughs> and he's doing, and he's doing an impression of uh, his co-star. Barry is such a fun guy. Stephen Root, welcome to the gist. Hi. Thanks, man. Yeah. So let's talk Barry first of all. Um, cliched question, but I do want to know: on paper, when you got the script, did it jump out at you as? interesting amazing different from what you've seen yeah all those things um because when i'm in this latter part of my career that's what that's what i look at first is a script whether not not if it's good but if it's great and i thought this one was great and it had bill Hader in it and i was a huge uh, bill Hader fan uh and at that point henry uh wasn't wasn't in it yet but he like myself uh went in to show him and they said you know we don't want audition but we want to sh we want to see what you do with it and we both did that and once i knew henry was in i knew i was in he's amazing uh but you didn't have scenes with him right until the very end of season no two? no i didn't have any scenes with him um i and most of my stuff then that er on that early season was with with anthony kerrigan who he plays noho hank but yeah yeah and that was that was so fun and so great we were out in the woods and had a just had a blast but you saw, you get excited to be in the show because Henry Winkler's in it, and then you find out it's a couple of years before you actually get to do a scene with the guy. Uh huh. Exactly. But that's okay. Yeah. Because uh, even even though a lot of the show is set uh, shot separately in different different places, we don't get to intermingle much. We see each other. You know. Well, that we actually got to rehearse a little bit on this show, which is fantastic. <laughs> Doesn't happen all the time. So we'd see each other passing in rehearsals and we we used to do table reads pre-COVID. Of course, we don't do that now. So yeah, we got to hook up a little bit. So from when we say you saw the script, would it be just the script of the pilot to get an idea? Yeah, yeah, okay. just the script of the pilot. But the, uh, again, that changed dramatically. We shot that pilot and the character that I did in that pilot was not the character I'm doing now. Um, he was very much of over the top, yelling all the time, mean, just uh, at, at an 11. Mm -hmm. And when they finished the pilot, they said, Steve's great. He's at an 11. Where's he going to go? So yeah. um, HBO and Bill figured out, well, let's try, let's go bad uncle. Bad uncle. So that you start the series with, hey, pal, how are you? I just want to <laughs> do something, <laughs> you know. So you start in here and then you can build to the 11. So that's really interesting. If this was conceived, like if this was 20 years ago before the era of uh, prestige TV, it probably would have been a really interesting movie. And the original character you played at an 11, that could have worked for the movie version. Absolutely. Of Barry, but for a TV show, you want more room for growth. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta have some backstory and some stuff. And we ended up having great backstory because uh, Bill and the writers are just unbelievable. Also, in terms of self-preservation, if you start off with an 11 in a TV show where people are getting killed left and right, it is more tempting just to off your character. <laughs> you need some rest in between. <laughs> so the thing about this character, this show, but also so many of your characters is you play 
people with a lot of menace. I'm thinking about your Boardwalk Empire character and just different kind of maybe scheming Southerners, which is a trope that you're yeah, into. Yeah, the Perry but you Mason also play, guy. Perry Mason right. guy, yeah. Uh-huh. So you play dangerous, but you also play, you've played perhaps the meekest character in cinema history <laughs> and in office space, and you do that well, too. Well, you know, again, good script, good people, too much fun. Yeah, but that is also where a lot of, don't you agree that that's also where a lot of the humor of Barry lies? The interplay between menace, I mean, death is going on, and gruesomely depicted death, and really anodyne details of life, like, a, you know, good thing that Groupon didn't expire. And, you know, 20, epi- 20 examples of that a season. Yeah, well, I think with with this character, we, we've introduced the, the actual love very early on. He really loves Barry. It truly, truly loves Barry, but he's truly screwed up and can't and can't separate that. So, you know, they, there's there's real love for the character and that and I got to play that. But I also got to play the revenge. I mean, this season is uh, a season of revenge and a season for you of uh, here sign co-stars. This is of a related to goats. The word here sign. Uh, how is working with the goats? <laughs> Oh, oh, oh uh, the, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I've, you've gone past me. The ghost? Goats. Oh, the goats. <laughs> well, I'm, hey, I'm a, I'm a 70 year old cis male. I, I can't hear anymore. <laughs> Do you think it's your cisness? <laughs> it's your. <laughs> um, I didn't goats. know about gender identity and deafness correlating, but okay. <laughs> uh, goats. The best thing about the goats, and they were all great. There was a whole herd of them. There was one main goat that you actually had to lead around and and had to love you a little bit. Uh, but the hardest part of that shoot was the goat herders, because we we get in this enormous field to shoot these big wide shots, and and Bill will go, okay, Stephen, you get the lead goat, and boom, I'm over here, and then we're gonna do that, that, that. Okay, and the goat herders right there with the other goats. And he says, okay, so when we shoot, you, you guys just, you know, vacate the screen. And, right. uh, and he says, okay, action. They don't go anywhere. The code herders just stay right there. He says, no, no, no. See, you've got to get out of the picture. you got to go all the way over here. Okay? Okay, good. All right. And action. Nothing. So <laughs> the hardest part of doing the goat scene was the goat herding the goat herders. Yeah, who will herd the herders? Yeah, yeah. So these were not TV goats or no, movie goats. These were these were these were real goats, but the herders were not used to maybe, you know, the uh, the kind of the uh, whole rigmarole of doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're kind animals, but they do kind of show affection by butting you sometimes. They they, they will butt you sometimes, but you're their best friend if you have a handful of corn. It's better <laughs> than gold. <laughs> so that if people haven't seen it. On a couple, and I'm, I'm through, I think, episode seven this season, there are there is this recurring theme, this trope of you being nursed back to life by an attractive brunette. And I was thinking, okay, we've seen this before, and I was trying to actually think, well, what is the er text for this? Where have we seen this? And I think it may be from that John Wayne movie, Angel and the Bad Man, with, mm, but yeah. I'm not sure. It seems familiar, but do you know the exact movies I where we've seen yeah, it? Yeah, I couldn't tell you the exact movies, but that's a good reference reference to it. But it all works in terms of um, he, he gets to a place with these beautiful women that's like, uh, life is good. There should be just, you should just enjoy it. 
and he can't do it. He can't, He just is not psychologically able to not do the revenge. And that's what this whole season is about for him. He's just, he can't do it. Do you do the thing that a lot of actors do where you invent a backstory for your character, even if it doesn't, even if it isn't explicitly referenced? On I'm, that's not how I work mostly. I mostly work on the page, but uh, yeah, you do need to do it sometimes. In this case, not as much because... Uh, Bill wrote some good stuff and we talked about some stuff, but uh, a, a detailed uh, vision of this guy's backstory. No, we didn't do that. It always did strike me for the actors that do. Well, what if then it's contradicted again, different if it's in a movie where the script's not going to change that much in a TV show. But what if the what if it's contradicted uh, by the actual writers? Then it seems like it yeah. would do some sort of schizophrenia. Yeah, but in the then actor. again, it seems to be what kind of actor you are. Are you method? Are you kind of method? If you're full method, yes, you're going to go ahead and do that backstory. That's not where I came from. I came from I came from uh, Shakespeare and theater in New York and. Uh, the backstory was the play, so that's where yes. I came from. Well, you also came literally from Sarasota, Florida, right? <laughs> no, I did not. No? I where? was born in Sarasota, Florida, and three weeks oh. later, I was this, the youngest kid to take a plane right out of there to uh, New Orleans. And then, Okay, so you grew up in New Orleans. I did not. No. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, here's the deal. My dad was a construction uh, supervisor on steam power plants. Steam power plants took a year and a half. To, to, to put up by uh, Vasco Services. So he, he worked for Vasco. They'd say, you go to New Orleans and you finish that one. Then you go to Glen Rock, Wyoming, and you finish that one. Then you go to Sioux City, Iowa, and you finish that one. So I, I, every year and a half, I was someplace new. And did you like that? I didn't know it was odd, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, to go into different cities and be in a thousand different schools and not have any, you know, really boyhood friends because I was in a different place. But I think it what it did was made a gypsy out of me, which is perfect for this life. Because you're going in, you're going out. You're Especially if you're guest starring, you're going into a family, getting out. Going into the next family, getting out. So that was, I think, good for later on. Yeah. And did it, did you kind of adopt, probably overthink this because you are an actor with a lot of range, but did you use the opportunity to kind of try on different personas when you'd get to a different school? In the last school, I was kind of this guy and the Didn't new school. Didn't do like, that early in my life. No. I, did I do that after I got out? I, I went to college at UF. I'm a Gator. So uh, after, after doing the training program there, yes, I would all the time use that. When I was in New York, whenever I did a play somewhere else, I would look for I would look for the guys to go, oh, yeah, I want to use that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And what about, you do a lot of Southern roles and uh, impeccable Southern accent, even though there's no such thing as a Southern accent. No. Right? It changes from but, region yeah. to region. Yeah. So uh, how did you, how did that, did you consider yourself Southern when you first got to New well, York and did you Broadway? Well, when I got to New York, uh, there was a whole bunch of Southern contingent actors who were from Alabama, Georgia you know, uh, Florida, and we kind of coalesced in New York and said, ha had to help each other because we were starving actors back then. So yeah, we I knew a lot of Southern guys, ended up doing a lot of Southern plays. In fact, I did two years of Driving Miss Daisy and the National Tour. So did lots of Southern plays. Uh, so I, I kind of felt Southern by by the end of that, yeah. And then does it happen that you get cast as someone who maybe does uh, a 
a syrupy accent or a menacing accent, uh, and then it just propels. You, you keep getting past, cast in that way? Yeah, well, uh, you know, that's why I've been trying desperately to not get typecast my whole uh, whole thing. So if I do do comedy for a while, I did news radio for a while, stopped doing um, sitcoms for a while, and didn't, you know, uh, West Wing and, and uh, what, CSI, whatever. Um, yeah. Just to just to get out and get out and, and, and take a cast in the American and go, hello, he can act, he can do other stuff. That's awesome. Have you ever, don't take it as an insult, I told you, you're like my favorite actor. Have you ever been number one on, on any call sheet? Mm, a short. <laughs> Maybe uh-huh. in a short. <laughs> <laughs> And and that's like, that's like the leading day. the leading hitter in for double A, I guess. Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping to do that at some point. Uh, uh-huh. But it would have to be a project that I developed, to, that I wanted to bring to somebody. Uh, as an actor for hire, I don't want to be an actor for hire as in, on the number one. I, right. want, I want to be involved more than that. What stories do you want to tell? What are you drawn to? It's not so much what it is, but... but if it's if it's interesting to me in terms of a good uh, whether it's a dramatic story or economy, it doesn't matter to me as long as it's interesting for me to do. You know, have I done this? Have I walked this this tightrope? And I did True Blood because uh, when do you get to play a gay vampire? You know, you yes. you want to walk different different lines. So if it's something that I want to do, it'll be something different. You know. Yes, he was, and he was the most uh, benign vampire, I think, in that series. There was no menace to him. No, there wasn't. Poor guy. Yeah. Although it worked out, everyone else was, I'm not going to say, if not chewing the scenery, chewing their co-star's necks. <laughs> and you were, it's a ni- it was a nice counterpoint to some of the general tone of that series, which I watched, I think, all of. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Plus, I got to meet a couple of the people that I would... Lois Smith, later on, I would do a play in New York with her and uh, just a lot of great people. I'm sure this is the role you get asked about the most, but Milton in office space. Do you have any sense of how big that was going to be when you committed to it? No, we were we were doing a, a fun B movie for Mike Judge, you know, and half the people in it uh, were doing King of the Hill. You know, we were doing King of the Hill at the time. And he asked a bunch of us to go read it for Fox and he was going to read Milton. He decided, nah, I don't want to. You go ahead and read it. <laughs> and, huh. then, and then we, uh, he, he gave me an idea. He showed me a pencil sketch of what that character was like. And he said, what would you do? You know, do something around that, but not that. So I gave him a lisp and, and, and whatever else I did for it. Yeah. Yeah. The pencil sketch. I, I've seen the, um, now that you mentioned, I've seen the cartoon. It has this odd pulsating, well, like, like many of his drawings do, yeah. right? Early stuff, did, yeah. Did, do you think that influenced the, who the character was? The fact that it was a you know a weird non uh, photographic type representation mm, of been. him because um, yeah. it was it was very short and I had no time to uh, even think about it. I just had to come up with something on the fly. And uh, fortunately, as we got into the script, it was it was clearer to me what this guy was. Now a lot of actors' legacies are they played a character who was maybe a real person. We can't think of the real person without thinking of the actor. That's an accomplishment. But you might be the only actor who, because of the humanity you brought to a character, breathed into the world, an actual office supply, that did not exist beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got you could say the same with Gary Cole. I mean, Gary Cole is iconic just, just for, for saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
But I think of, but I was at a friend's house and he had a red swing line stapler. And I said, do you know the history of the red swing line stapler? And they did not. And that, it didn't exist before Milton obsessed over it, right? Oh gosh, no, no, no. They, they, because that, that movie came out in 99 and 2000 into the, the blockbuster world, that was just, that was what was exploding at the time. And uh, I think without uh, video rental, that, that movie wouldn't have done what it did. Yeah. Do you have a box of those? Did Swingline send you a box of the red staplers? Always. Always have to sign them. <laughs> there isn't a, a set I don't go on where I don't sign some. Uh, sign <laughs> at least one. <laughs> at least. Well, now I'm sure you're going to be asked to sign goats. So that's a new challenge. That would be something else. I'm going to have to find something cool to sign as a goat. That, that's, uh, that, that'll be a challenge. <laughs> well, Stephen Root is, uh, to me, as I have disclosed, a bit of the goat of character actors. He's in season three and who knows how many more seasons of Barry. Although, like we said, anyone could die at any time. You never know. Absolutely. There's nobody safe on this show. (laughs) Thanks so much. I enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. As just listeners know, every show, every single show has a reference to the nation of Turkey in it, and also a reference to the bird of Turkey in Portuguese. There are similar words, Peru. I won't tell you what the other Peru stands for, but it is the word for Turkey in English, i.e. Turkey, that the president of Turkey is quite upset about, as the BBC explains. Turkey, not Turkey, is what the Turkish government wants you to call the country. Well, what's wrong with Turkey? It is a creeping autocracy where a suppressive government roots out dissent, purges political rivals, and infringes on the freedoms of its people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's wrong with the name Turkey? Salim Kuru of the Foreign Policy Institute has this explanation. The association with the bird genuinely annoys Erdogan and and the people around him. See, my problem with the name Turkey is that I don't associate it with a bird. I associate it with Erdogan himself. For decades, Turkey was a majestic land, both simultaneously modern and ancient, located at the nexus of east and west. Founded by the wisely secular Kamil Ataturk, it was the model of stability and stalwartness. Hearing Turkey to an American ear from about the end of World War II through the end of the last century brought to mind only warm associations as voiced here by John F. Kennedy on the 25th anniversary of Ataturk's death. The name of Ataturk brings to mind the historic accomplishments of one of the great men of this century. His inspired leadership of the Turkish people, his perceptive understanding of the modern world, and his boldness as a military leader. Now, of course... Ataturk was not without flaws, but as an American president, Kennedy had experience in pardoning Turkey. He perhaps in this speech went a bit too far, overstuffing the Turkey. It is to the credit of Ataturk and the Turkish people that a free Turkey grew out of a collapsing empire. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Free turkey! Thank you, members of local sports team giving back to the community. But in reality, the freedom of Turkey suffered greatly under Erdogan, and so did its reputation. It's the direct actions of the would-be dictator in charge that made this happen. So Turkey now inspires some regrettable, or I would argue, absolutely delightful puns. But turkey connotes seriousness, but literally deadly seriousness. There's a well-known and well-documented phenomenon of rebranding things to sidestep stigma rather than the much harder course of addressing the stigma directly. Linguistics pros and amateurs from George Carlin to John McWhorter note this phenomenon. Shell shock becomes battle fatigued, becomes PTSD. Crippled becomes handicapped, becomes differently abled. Affecting the nomenclature change is so much easier than addressing the underlying associations. And what happens once you get people to change the phrase is those associations graft themselves onto the new label. It's inevitable. Steven Pinker called it the euphemistic treadmill. My personal fascination with this is that rebranding should be a very small part of the overall effort and destigmatization should be a large part, really what the whole movement of advocates are trying to achieve. But in reality, those ratios are reversed, like the drunk looking for his keys under the street lamp. It's much easier to find them there, even if he didn't drop them there. What I'm saying is it's so much easier to browbeat people and institutions into changing words than it is to simply identifying the non-elite people who are prone to having attitudes that need changing. So you don't even bother with the second part, getting someone to change his words or even better, yelling at someone who doesn't change his words. It's a dopamine hit, but it's a slog to an effect and opinion such that the wrong phrase doesn't even seem appealing. You just give it up naturally. Does this ever even happen? Yeah, I could think of a couple times where there have been big societal shifts in attitudes and then the phrases go along with them. One I specifically mentioned just a couple seconds ago, drunk. We have replaced drunk to call a person a drunk with alcoholic. Why? Because it seemed more accurate to how we now understand the experience of alcoholism. To a large extent, changing the phrase crazy person or he's crazy to mentally ill just seems more accurate and it doesn't take much cajoling to get people to call those with mental illness mentally ill instead of crazy. But then you come up against the opposite, like neurodivergent. I mean, for some members of that community, Temple Grandin, maybe so, but for the vast majority of people with autism who don't have the wherewithal to engage in a public debate about branding or rebranding this condition, neurodivergent doesn't best encapsulate the situation. As far as countries, Cambodia changed to and from Kampuchea, and when the Soviet Union fell, most of their satellite countries dropped the word people from the official name, uh, ironically, as they actually came to be ruled by the people. But I haven't seen a national rebrand based on the old word having negative associations, specifically associations with a ridiculous bird. But if anyone could try to escape their own sins by relabeling those sins as quirks or assets, it's Recep Tayyip Erdogan. So in the future, when an English speaker asks, hey, what was that country that was once a regional leader in terms of democracy, civil rights, and progress, but now embodies a cynical retrenchment towards oppression, I'd say, Turkey, yeah. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the co-owner of Peachfish Productions, and that stems from her experience owning local radio station WNYX. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, Gperoo, Dooperoo. Wait, let me check. We can still say it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>